You're listening to the SSPX podcast. This week, Father Robinson and I are talking about the liturgy of Passion Week, of Palm Sunday, and of Holy Week. And we recorded this about three weeks ago, and I put that disclaimer in to let you know that at the time we had no idea that uh, many of our chapels would be forced to close or to be severely limited by the authorities because of the coronavirus. Uh, I mentioned that not to make a bigger deal out of it than it is, but to point out that at a couple points during this podcast, Father Robinson uh, talks about attending the Holy Week liturgy as if it's a certainty and saying, when you go, look for this and make sure you notice this, or he, he is encouraging you to attend uh, Tenebrae, for instance. So he's not saying that in order to be insensitive. We simply had no idea three weeks ago that all of this would change. And as we upload this podcast here on March the 27th, we have no idea uh, what the future holds for Holy Week either. The priests of the Society of St. Pius X are doing absolutely the best that they can in order to provide provide for the faithful during this time. Uh, they did not become priests in order to shelter in place. They became priests in order to help the faithful and to be ministering to them and providing the sacraments. Uh, and I promise you that this is difficult for them, but they're doing the best that they can during this time to make prudential good decisions, both for the temporal and the spiritual well-being of the faithful. I can at least also promise you that we will be live streaming Holy Week liturgies uh, in one form or another. We will be doing that uh, for the benefit of the faithful who may not be able to attend. So just look for those resources online at sspx.org. Uh, you'll find mass times in which of our chapels uh, are still allowed to be open and not. Uh, and you'll also find resources for audio and live streaming and extra podcast episodes that you may have already noticed in your feed and much more. Please pray for the priest during this time. Please pray for each other. And let's for a moment forget about everything else and focus on some of the symbolism and the beauty of the Holy Week liturgy with Father Robinson. Father Robinson, thanks for coming back. In our last episode, we talked about Ash Wednesday and Lent as a whole. I'd like to dive in in this episode on the period of Passion Week, so the two weeks leading up to Easter. Uh, could we talk a little bit about Passion Week and what the some of the traditions are there? Yes, two, two weeks before. Um, and that's, of course, a, a very notable time because there's the covering of the statues um, and it's just a, a way to intensify Lent and, and to say we're, we're really getting close to the climax, which, of course, is Good Friday with, with the death of our Lord. Um, so on that Passion Sunday, the introit of the Mass is the Yudikame, the, the uh, Psalm 42 that is said um, at the prayers of the foot of the altar. And after that, that is said, then you don't hear the Yudikame um, until Easter Sunday. So that's that's suppressed. And um, not only is is the, the Gloria and Excelsis Deo suppressed, but also the Gloria Patri Filio Spiritui Sancto um, is, is suppressed in many different parts. It doesn't go totally away, um, but in, in many parts of uh, the Mass and the Office, there is no Gloria Patri. For instance, at the Lavabo, um, the priest doesn't say Gloria Patri at the end of the Lavabo during those two weeks. So there again, these are just different ways for um, the church to indicate that we're, we're entering into a more intense time of the anticipation of our Lord's Passion. Oh, I see. Okay. And then moving forward, looking forward to Holy Week. Uh, Holy Week starts off with Palm Sunday, uh, characterized always by the procession of palms, the blessing of palms, and then uh, the priest hands them out to the faithful. And then uh, if space allows, there's a small procession before Mass. 
And I'm always struck by this day as sort of a mixture of joy and sorrow, joy because the people are welcoming our Lord into Jerusalem and then sorrow because, you know, five days later, they'll be shouting, crucify him. Could you talk a little bit about the symbolism of the palms and why we do that today, Father? Yes, that's right. I mean, so it's that's really the the time when we start to follow uh, day by day the the events of of our Lord's life um, and leading up to Good Friday. So, um, actually, chronologically, so um, it was the Sunday before Good Friday that that our Lord entered in Jerusalem in this triumphant way, and so. We, we carry the palms, um, which at the time, I mean, we, we don't do this anymore, but, but um, uh, palms were, were given to, to winners of, of various contests as a symbol of, of their triumph. Um, so that's why we, we carry the palms, just to symbolize the, the triumph of Christ the King. Um, and we sing various hymns to Christ the, the King on Palm Sunday, um, just to enter into that, that brief moment, that very brief um, yeah, sort of cameo appearance of our Lord as as Christ the King before going to His Passion. So a little bit of inside baseball here for our listeners. These interviews with the Father, they're, they're not gotcha questions. Father knows what I'm going to be asking him ahead of time, so he has time to prepare. And so we'll email back and forth a little bit. And, and in the email that Father, you sent me, you, you put down that you wanted to talk about the closed door in Palm Sunday and what that signifies. And either I have not been paying good enough attention during the Palm Sunday ceremonies, or I, I don't know, but what is the, what is the closed door portion of the ceremony? I'm unfamiliar with that. Well, um, this is, is something that went away with the Holy Week reform under Pius XII, um, which is still practiced at some of our chapels. We did it when I was in the seminary and you'll see it at some chapels where when you um, finish your procession and you come back to the church, the church door is closed. And so you have some scholar members on the inside, and they're seeing various things. And then the people on the outside make um, various replies to what they're singing. And then when the singing is done, the crossbearer goes up to the door of the chapel, and he knocks it three times with the with the cross, and then the uh, the door is open. So So this is just... Um, symbolism of the cross opening up the door of heaven to us. So the, the voices inside the church represent um, choirs of angels who sort of re-echo what, what we're seeing here below. So um, the faithful on the outside sing uh, something very similar to what is being sung on the inside. And then, um, yeah, as I say, the, the, the cross strikes the door and it opens the gates of heaven and everybody um, goes in the the church at that point, which which um, you know typically represents heaven. The church represents heaven. That's interesting. So you you just made a reference to it, Father. The the Holy Week liturgy itself has changed. Much of our liturgy has uh, over the centuries. But what about the practice, the the faithful's practice of Lent and of Holy Week? Uh, was there anything that has changed there over the centuries? Well, the, uh, definitely, our penance has has become less and less strict. Over time, um, as we know, I mean, in, in the early days of the church, they were very, very strict. I mean, we, we spoke about public penitents wearing sackcloth and ashes um, for crimes like like adultery or murder or whatever. Um, but also the the corporeal penances that people did were were very strict. Um, so in in the original days, for that last week of Lent, people would just um, fast on bread, water, and and dried fruits. 
um, and up to the 8th century, people stopped working completely. So all of the days of, of Holy Week were considered like Holy Days of Obligation, where you wouldn't do any servile labor during during that time. Okay. And also during Holy Week, we have the Divine Office. That changes a little bit. Uh, we have this new form of the Divine Office uh, that is said and sometimes sung, uh, and that is called Tenebrae. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what Tenebrae is and, and what the history is and what it signifies? Tenebrae, yes. Yeah. So Tenebrae is just the name giving, given to the, the singing of matins and lauds on the last three days of Lent. So Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, um, there's there's a singing of matins and laws, and it's called tenebrae because a lot of times, um, well, it's tenebrae is, is just a Latin word meaning darkness, but a lot of times it would be sung in the early um, hours of the morning in, in darkness, and um, you would just have this candlestick with, with 15 candles, um, and there, there are um, 14 psalms involved in the singing of matins and laws. There's there's nine psalms for matins, and there's five psalms for lauds. And um, when each psalm is completed, and again, there's no Gloria Patri at the end of those psalms. It's 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 Holy Week. It's the time of it's Passion Tide, so they remove the Gloria Patri. So once once each psalm is is complete, uh, one of the candles is snuffed out. So you go through all. 14 psalms for, for matins and lauds, and there's just one candle left burning. And that can represent um, Our Lady as, as the only one maintaining the faith um, a- after all others had lost it, or it, it can represent Our Lord. And um, the, the server, the MC, he takes that candle and he places it behind some sort of book that's on the altar. And it can represent our Lord sort of descending into the the tomb, descending uh, into hell, into the lower regions. Um, And when that happens, uh, this is is the the, the climatic moment of Tenebrae. Um, People actually take their books and start banging the pews uh, with their books. And and this is meant to represent the disturbances of nature that occurred when our Lord died. Um, And they bang the books for for a little while. Um, And then the server gets up and he takes the candle from behind the book, and uh, when they see that candle of our Lord again, um, they stop banging, and um, it, it gets put back on the candlestick, and, and that last candle is snuffed, and then everybody leaves in silence. So, I mean, this um, is, is, is a very sort of powerful way of, of entering into the sorrow of, of our Lord's death because the, the hymns are, are very mournful, um, the, the Gregorian chant is very mournful, um, but it's it's um, a great sort of way to connect with the, the liturgy of, of Holy Week if if our faithful have it available at their chapel. It is. It's one of my favorite practices of Holy Week, if I got to be honest. Uh, just the church is usually very quiet. It's and these haunting tunes, melodies is probably the better term. Um, the lamentations of, of Jeremiah, especially. Uh, there's there's something so stirring and so sorrowful and somber about it. Yes, it, it is. Uh, those lamentations um, are the first three lessons of each of those days. So Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, there's nine lessons. And the first three of those are these lamentations of, of Jeremiah. And there's like a simple form of them, and there's a more complex form. But um, the, the complex form that they have, they call it Mozarabic, 
um, is is as you say, it's it's really it's really haunting and and, and mournful. Um, and the text itself um, that corresponds to that is is just um, very very uh, it has a lot of pathos. I think we would say. <laughs> So Tenebrae starts on, on Holy Thursday, and then we have the liturgy of, of Holy Thursday itself that evening. And there's a different form of the liturgy that takes place, whether or not it's a bishop or a priest uh, performing the Mass. Is that right? That's correct. Um, there's a very special ceremony called the Chrism Mass. And this is the, the ceremony wherein the bishop uh, makes the holy oils that are to be used by the priest um, throughout the entire district for for the whole year. So you have three types of holy oils. Um, there's the the oil of the sick. There's the oil of the catechumens, and there's the sacred chrism. And these oils, of course, are used in the conferral of some of the sacraments. Um, sometimes they're the actual matter of the sacraments. Sometimes they're not, and they're just for accompanying ceremonies. Um, for instance, with baptism, you you use the the chrism and you use the oil of catechumens. Actually, function you use the the oil of the sick um, for an ordination. You use the oil of catechumens for confirmation. You use the sacred chrism. So um, there's a special mass where the bishop makes these oils, and um, the priest actually needs those oils for the paschal vigil ceremony when he makes the baptismal water. So people not, may not realize, but the baptismal water has two of the holy oils in it. Uh, the sacred chrism and the oil of the catechumen. So the, if the priest is going to make the baptismal water on the Paschal Vigil, he needs the holy oils that the, the bishop um, consecrated on Holy Thursday at the Chrism Mass. So that's why um, a lot of our priests will go to the seminary and and uh, be there at the Chrism Mass, which, which in fact um, asks for there to be uh, 12 priests there. They're, they're actually part of the ceremony, but and then they will transport those holy oils back to their church and have them available for um, for the Holy Saturday ceremonies. Oh, that sounds beautiful. I've never been able to get to a chrism mass. I, I would love to attend sometime. Uh, but in most of our chapels, the faithful just have access to a priest, just. Uh, and that mass uh, is called the Vesperal Mass. Is that right? The Vesperal Mass, correct. So that's just, Vesperal just means evening. It's it's the evening mass where, again, we're, we're following chronologically through the life of our Lord. And so um, the Vesemal Mass represents the Last Supper. Um, and because of that, because it's it's sort of a mixture of, of, a, of a joyful supper and also of, of, sorrow, of, of a sorrowful event, because after the supper, um, you have our Lord being taken captive. So the, the Mass starts off in white vestments, um, and it's, it's to commemorate the institution of the priesthood and the institution of, of the Holy Eucharist. Um, and there's even a, a Gloria that's, that's sung and the, the ringing of, of the bells um, during that Vesperal Mass. Um, but then after, as, as you know, after the Gloria, then there's no more uh, bells that are rung until Easter Sunday. There's just that clapper. Um, that, that everybody remembers, I think, from, from Holy Week. Yes. Um, and so so there's this brief moment of, of joy, and then um, we go immediately into our Lord's agony um, and his, his being taken captive. So, um, of course, the Blessed Sacrament is transported to an altar of repose, um, and the faithful are invited to to adore our Lord present there until midnight when, when he's, like, taken away. Um, to spend that hour um, watching with with our Lord, um, 
And then after the, the priest takes the Blessed Sacrament to the altar of repose, he, he goes back to, to the church and he strips uh, the altar in remembrance of our Lord's stripping of, of his garments. And the altar remains um, unadorned f- until until Holy Saturday um, evening, just sort of to, to really help the faithful relive those those um, last three days of, of our Lord's that correspond to our Lord's death and resurrection. And it really is striking during the Holy Thursday Mass. You have, like you said, the, the white vestments, almost the celebration. Well, not almost. You know, it really is a celebration of the institution of, of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and the bells and the incense and the flowers. And then almost immediately, it's like a switch is turned. Uh, the altars are bare, not even the altar cloth. The flowers are removed. It's replaced by the clacker. It's this sudden shift and the, the holy mother church is so good at the, at the symbolism i it sounds like, like a weird way to, to describe it but there really is this switch that is that is flipped during this mass to almost kind of jar the faithful's attention towards seriousness absolutely and it, it is uh, it is very powerful you know i mean we may not we may not realize it um so much as as catholics if we're if we've gone every year um, but I, I really invite the faithful to make an effort to be present at these ceremonies. This is part of the richness of our Catholic faith, um, and it, it is extremely helpful in a way that you can't. You can't. I mean, there's no um, home replication of this. You can't do this at home. This is, you know, um, you, you need to go to the actual ceremonies. You need to go to Tenebrae, um, even if you if you can't sing Gregorian chant, just just to spend those couple of hours to really um, at at the end of Lent to give that final push of intensification to invest your time in being part of these liturgical ceremonies, experience the richness of of our Catholic faith, and uh, really identify with the passion of our Lord. So that's Holy Thursday, and then the next day, Good Friday. Uh, To me, Father, the Good Friday was always uh, unique in a sense because there's there's really no mass on that day, but that doesn't mean that there are no ceremonies that the church uh, has in, in in her tradition. Could we talk a little bit about the the ceremonies of, of Good Friday? And and again, yeah, it's, it's not called a mass; it's called the liturgy of Good Friday. Is that correct? Um, well, it, it can be called a mass in a very broad sense, uh, the mass of the pre-sanctified. But you're right; it's not an actual mass. Um, it's just called a mass only because it has a certain certain prayers that are taken from the mass in the fourth part of of that uh, liturgy. Which I guess sometimes you'll you'll see it called the liturgical action. Um, that's that's kind of the terminology you find in the missal. Um, but the church just does not want to have um, the the sacrifice of the mass on the same day we commemorate the sacrifice of Calvary. Um, so she, she wants us our our entire focus to be on remembering. Uh, the sacrifice of Calvary instead of uh, renewing the sacrifice of Calvary. So, so we we really look at our Lord's death very deeply on that day, and so we don't we don't have a mass proper. We just have all of these ceremonies, and then at the end, um, the reception of Holy Communion at that what what's called the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified, meaning that we take. Um, hosts that were sanctified at some other day, well, on Holy Thursday, and we use those hosts. So there's no there's no actual consecration that takes place on Good Friday, and so there's no actual mass as such. We can go to the to some of the earlier parts of the of the liturgical action, uh, Father. But 
why is it that there is no mass on Good Friday? It, what's the re- because it seems to me that the the mass, you know, the the recreation of of the sacrifice on Calvary, to me as you know an un- uneducated guy, uh, it seems like Good Friday would be the perfect time to have the full mass. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, um, the church really wants us to focus more on remembering. Um, the sacrifice okay. of Calvary as it took place on Good Friday, whereas the Mass itself is not primarily a remembering. Um, you know, this is the problem with the Novus Ordo. It's like they make the, the Mass into just a memorial, um, Well, where you just remember what took pl- place in the past, and you're not actually renewing the sacrifice of Calvary by, by offering, making that same offering that was offered on Good Friday. Um, so on Good Friday, the Church says, well, effectively, we're, we're just going to do the remembering today um, on on the other days we we actually do the renewal of the sacrifice of Calvary and we offer again um, what our Lord offered on Good Friday uh, but for that one day of Good Friday um, we we don't we don't do that that renewal of the sacrifice of Calvary because we're focused on that original sacrifice of Calvary um, that happened on uh, on the day of our Lord's death very interesting so so moving a moving forward then a little bit or, or to the beginning of the uh, of the ceremonies we have the, we have the lessons we have the collects uh, the response rate and then we have the singing of the passion of Saint John uh, and is there a particular reason why we we chant the passion of Saint John as opposed to one of the others you know Matthew Mark or Luke on on Good Friday um, I don't think there is a particular reason. I think the church um, just does them in order. So what you have is you have St. Matthew's Passion is um, is chanted on Palm Sunday. And then actually on Holy Tuesday, we have Mark. Holy Wednesday, we have Luke. And then Good Friday, we have John. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that order, um, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Friday. So I think since St. St. John is the last um, gospel, uh, the, the, the last of the four gospels, and because um, Good Friday is the last day that we have a chanting of the Passion, um, that's why we have St. John. After, right after the, the chanting of that Passion, you have the, the solemn collects, those, uh, the, the nine prayers that are said for different classes of people. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think when we when we hear the chant, we all it's a very distinctive chant. We all remember what those sound like. You know, like Oremos da 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 da. That that sort of melody for the chant. Idea is that on Good Friday we we want to have some solemn prayers for um, the Pope, for the Church. Um, for all the different degrees of the faithful, um, the clerics, the priests, the faithful, um, we want to have prayers for the governors of states. We want to have prayers for catechumens who are going to receive baptism on Holy Saturday, the very next day. Um, we want to have prayers um, even for, for those who are outside the church. So these prayers are, are very beautiful. Um, and then after we, we have those solemn collects, we have the, the adoration of the cross where the, the cross is uh, progressively unveiled in three different stages and everyone approaches and, and of course, venerates the cross. So, so the solemn unveiling of the cross uh, done on Good Friday, again, that's, that's you know, everything else in the church, all the other statues and images are still covered with those purple cloths. But on Good Friday, uh, the cross itself is uncovered. And again, that uh, probably goes back to what you were saying earlier, Father. It's, it's really remembering 
what was you know what was done on on that day. It's uh, really a striking way of making the faithful see the cross uh, again. Is that probably a fair way? Of yes. Saying it? Yes, definitely. I mean, um, the the unveiling of the cross and the adoration of the cross is, is a very uh, powerful ceremony. And and during the unveiling of the cross, you have those very um, moving chants that speak about the things that were done to our Lord. Our, our, our Lord, is, they're, they're called the reproaches because it's our Lord actually reproaching us. He said, I, I did this for you, you know, um, through the desert and out of Egypt and into the promised land. And what have you done for me? You've prepared a cross for me, you know. Um, so that all that is being chanted while people are are venerating the cross. So we're remembering those sorrows of our Lord, and then it moves on to to basically have um, songs or, or Gregorian chants that praise the cross. Um, that that say, you know, sweet the nails, sweet the wood that, that bore such uh, a burden. The, the, that tree that bore such the burden that that uh, saved um, the human race. Um, so everything is focused on the cross. And then after the Good Friday ceremony, um, for the rest of the way up until Easter, um, we are asked to, to genuflect actually before the cross. So the cross is placed again above the altar. And when you come into the church, you, you genuflect once more before getting into the pew because you're just venerating uh, the cross. And th- that chant that is done during the adoration of, of the Holy Cross, the, the Crux Fidelis, uh, I've always been struck by the, by the meaning behind that and almost that dichotomy of, of sorrow, but also joy. Uh, I'm probably going to absolutely butcher the translation. This is <laughs> from memory, but I, I believe it uh, in Crux Fidelis, one of the lines is there was... Uh, never such a never such a tree never never a leaf so rare uh, in a sense almost saying it's it's a beautiful tree it's a beautiful object uh, because it led to our salvation yes yes um, there there is as you say that that mixture of of sorrow and at the same time the joy the the praising of that cross the rejoicing in that that tree on which our salvation hung. Um, and it's it's a very very moving chant. I think all of us who sort of uh, grown up with with that liturgy, we recognize it immediately when when Good Friday comes around. Um, and it's it's so beautiful for have for us to have those those wonderful chants and always to be able to come back to them. What it what it does is it creates for us um, a certain mood immediately um, once we hear the Crux Fidelis. Um, it, it, it sort of washes over us that. Um, sense of of our Lord's death um, because we've gone to the Good Friday service, you know, year after year, um, and it's it's amazing how the chant can do that. It is, and then we move on to the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified. Uh, why is it called Pre-Sanctified, Father? Um, it's it's called Pre-Sanctified because you we actually uh, take a host that was consecrated from the previous day. Um, from Holy Thursday, ah. so that that's the meaning of pre-sanctified. The 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 um, bread was was sanctified the day before by a consecration. While there's no consecration that actually takes place at that Good Friday service. Very interesting, and so that's a that's very short. It, it almost starts at the at the Paternoster, and then it goes to communion, and then. Uh, again, the the mass itself, the mass of the pre sanctified, almost ends very abruptly from what we're used to. There's no last gospel. There's no, uh, you know, the communion prayers are over and everyone files out. 
That's right. Yeah. So in, in the re- normal mass, um, the communion part actually starts at the Paternoster and the, the consecration or the canon is before that. So the canon starts with the preface of the mass and it ends with the Paternoster. So, you know, the, in this quote unquote mass of the pre-sanctified, we just start with the communion part with, with the Paternoster and then go through there and then have the communion and effectively it's just a few prayers. There's three prayers after that, um, after the communion, and then it's finished. So moving on then to the next day, we have Holy Saturday uh, and, the, and the Paschal Vigil. Uh, was this always done uh, at night, the, the Paschal Vigil, like we, like we do today? Um, in fact, it was not, Andrew. It's, it's interesting that um, in the early days of the church, um, it was done at the same time that we do it now, basically at around midnight between the Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday. Um, but then in the 8th century, they, they moved it from midnight to, to the evening, um, sort of a vestral time, just like for, for Holy Thursday, for the Holy Thursday Mass. Um, and then in the 12th century, in the Middle Ages, they actually had the Holy Saturday service in the morning. Um, and, and there may be some of our listeners out there remember the, the pre-55 uh, ceremonies where, where they used to have Holy Saturday services uh, in the morning. But, but Pius Twelfth changed it back to the original practice, and that's the time that we have it now where we have it at, at midnight. And this is this is you know if we talk about drama, you know from a uh, from a sense of the faithful being able to see what what's happening. Uh, this is you know right up there with with one of the more dramatic and and in, uh, intense moments in the liturgy. Uh, all of these you know using the fire uh, to start the the ceremonies and the blessing of the of the Paschal candle. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the symbolism of blessing the fire, Father? Yes. So as you say, I mean, I, I think this is the most powerful ceremony in the entire year, and it should be because it is the greatest feast of, of the entire year. Um, so the candle, obviously, we, we start outside because our Lord's tomb was was outside of Jerusalem where he was buried. It was outside of Jerusalem, and, and he's going to be rising up from the tomb. Um, and we can just think about his his dead body being there, and then all of a sudden, through the power of God, um, his human soul is reunited with his human body. We know that his soul went down to the lower regions, um, to limbo, in order to visit the fathers there and comfort them and announce the, the, the redemption to them. And then at a certain point on that, on that uh, Easter Sunday morning or around midnight or whenever it was, our Lord's human soul was reunited with his human body. So there is this, this uh, spark, this, this fire that's taken from, from the, the fire that's, that's built outside and the Paschal candle is lit. And that's the symbol of, of our Lord rising. And um, he passes through the doors of the church, is like passing through the tomb, and he goes out to enlighten the world. Um, so we bring the, the Paschal candle in, and you, ha- you take um, a, a taper or a candle, and you light it from the Paschal candle, and then slowly but surely you light all the candles of the faithful. And this is symbol of, of our Lord's light sort of spreading throughout the world. And then, of course, um, Yes, the the Paschal candle is is lit. Then for the forty days, uh, our Lord uh, makes appearances for forty days after his resurrection until the day of his ascension, um, and, and it's only then that he goes up into heaven. Um, so the Paschal candles is definitely a very powerful symbol of of our Lord and, and his resurrection 
Um, and it's just a, a very beautiful way of, of representing that in that in that ceremony of Holy Saturday. Speaking of the Paschal candle, Father, there are some there are some inscriptions and some uh, some blessings on on the Paschal candle that that the priest uh, you know performs. There's you know the inscription of Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. There's the date, you know, the current date, the current year uh, that is inscribed on on the candle. But then there's the five grains of incense. Why are there incense grains of incense placed onto the candle, Father? Uh, so the the grains of incense represent um, the five wounds of our Lord. Um, perhaps we can we can think uh. about the the wounds of our Lord uh, being sealed and and, and healed um, in in the grains of incense being inserted in them. And of course, the the candle uh, represents our our Lord. And that's why the Alpha and Omega is there. Um, we, we read in the book of the Apocalypse that, that our Lord is, is the Alpha and the Omega, the, the beginning, beginning and the end. And that's very much related to him being a master of time, that, that he's um, the, the one who ultimately rules over, over time. He rules over what, what happens in time. And this is what the priest says when he inscribes the candle with the year. He says, "Ipsius sunt tempora." Um, the the time time belongs to him, um, and so the the idea of him being at both the beginning and the end of time is an indication that that he really rules over time. Since we're inscribing it on the candle, and the candle represents him, we're indicating that that all time ultimately belongs to our Lord. Oh, that's beautiful. And then the the candle is placed and. Uh, placed into into the sanctuary and it's placed right right at the base of the altar right you know front and center yes and then the deacon begins chanting lessons uh and and some of these are are the most beautiful lessons again uh, of the entire year yes so once the candle comes in the the deacon carries it in he actually represents uh saint mary magdalene because she was the first one to announce the news of of our lord rising from the dead um she announced it to the apostles and then he goes over to the side, and after incensing the candle, he chants the exultet, which is is just a, a hymn in praise of the candle, and of, and of course of our Lord as well. Um, so, and then the the Paschal Preconium, this this uh, proclamation of the good news of Easter that our that our Lord has risen from the dead and that he's defeated death by by his resurrection. Um, so this is a very, very beautiful um, hymn that that has those famous words, O Felix Culpa, you know, O happy fault that, that merited such a redeemer for us. Wow. And Father, I, I can never think of of that moment without a little a little personal story uh, my senior year i was privileged enough to serve mc for for the paschal vigil uh it was back in saint mary's the celebrant he was singing the exultant and the cross bearer fainted right in the middle <laughs> uh, the entire the cross just clanged uh i i ran over grabbed the cross some <laughs> other men came up and and drugged the poor altar boy off off the altar and father didn't miss a beat he just kept singing the exultant like nothing happened. Everything was calm. And then I I looked over into the choir and one of the other priests just looked at me and took his hand and flipped it around. I had the cross backwards. And I, <laughs> that's when I started started laughing. I couldn't help it. But uh, 
it, I, I will always remember the exalted as being interrupted by this clicking. <laughs> well, the but exalted, it, it I mean, beautiful, nonetheless, I have to, I have to say that Crossbear's role is very difficult because um, after the exalted, there's this long, long preface style prayer, and it goes on forever, and and the Crossbear yeah. is on the other side, and he has to be there, um, you know, for a very long time holding up that cross, and it's it's midnight, and the ceremony's already been going on for a while. Um, so oh, yeah, yeah, that you. you you, that's one of the more difficult serving positions for the year. You normally crossbear is the easiest um, position of them all, but but that night that's not the case. It's not not at all, a poor guy. Uh, so so after that, hopefully without any fainting and without any crosses being dropped, we move on to the blessing of the baptismal water. Now, the baptismal water blessing and the uh, and the baptism itself. If there are any people who who are to be baptized from centuries that was always the time for for baptism was this back because of the uh the catechumens they would they would prepare all throughout lent and then finally they would be uh, brought into the church on easter is that kind of the history there father Yes, and and of course, I mean the our Lord's death and His resurrection is the ultimate triumph over death. So it's appropriate at that time when our Lord is triumphing over death and redeeming us and giving us the power to be saved, to save our souls, that people be received into the church. Um, so just as uh, the, the the Israelites passed over the waters of the Jordan, or um, the they passed through the Red Sea, the waters of the Red Sea. So too, the waters of baptism save us. Yet it's now is through the cross of our Lord, but we have the sacrament by which you're you're um, bathed with water, you're washed with water, and and you're saved. Um, so it's it's very very appropriate to associate the ceremony of baptism with the actual feast of Easter wherein our war, our Lord won our salvation. And so there's there's very elaborate ceremonies um, to bless the actual water that will be used for baptism for the entire year. So there is a special water that's used for baptism. It's, it's not just water, but it also contains some holy oils. It contains two of the holy oils, the, the oil of the catechumens and the sacred chrism. So the priest pours those um, oils into the water during the ceremony. Um, he performs a lot of uh, ceremonies over over this water. Um, he, he touches the water. He says sort of like an imposition of hands on the water in order to remove the influence of the devil. Um, he divides it a couple of times in the form of a cross. Um, he blesses it. He he takes the water and, and casts it to the you know north, south, east, west to uh, as a symbol of baptism being spread to the four corners of the earth. Um, he breathes over it, sort of symbolizing that the, that the Holy Ghost will will be working in this water. There's just a, a lot of of different ceremonies, beautiful ceremonies, in order to prepare this water for its sanctifying work of giving grace to souls throughout the year. And maybe this is something that we can dive into in in another in a future podcast in another questions with Father episode. But uh, there is a there is a distinct blessing here, uh, distinct difference here, Father, and that is that this, this water is exercised, not blessed. And, and that is a more powerful ceremony. Is that correct? Yes. Well, the, the, usually there's there's both are involved. Um, so even even holy water is exercised um, before it's it's blessed. Um, but but yes, there's there's definitely exorcisms and and blessings as well um, that are involved. Even even with with salt, the blessing of salt, there's both exorcisms and blessings involved in the preparation of that matter, which which is also used in the baptism 
um, as a preliminary ceremony, not as actual baptism itself, of course, but but it's used in the preliminary ceremonies for baptism. Sure. So we we've gone through these ceremonies and then mass actually starts. Uh, and is there anything very very different about the the mass of Holy Saturday? Sorry, the Paschal Vigil, or is most of are most of the distinct ceremonies already have taken place? Um, it's it's very different. It's it's um, more of a mass that is from the the primitive times of the church. So there's a lot of things that are taken out. Um, so there's uh, the additions that Gregory the Great made. Pope Gregory the Great uh, are not there. Um, things things like um, yes, the very various things are are omitted. Um, so it makes it shorter. But then at the end of the mass. Um, it's very interesting. You you have an actual chanting of lauds. Uh, the mm. priest sings a psalm, a very short psalm, and then, as always happens at lauds, lauds is um, basically the morning hour of the divine office. It's it's the hour that's chanted basically when when you get up um, in the morning. And there is usually five psalms, but this time, uh, the, with the laws being chanted during the mass, there's just the one psalm, and then um, there's the the Benedictus Antiphon, um, which is always sung at, at all uh, lauds divine offices, um, and that is just the Canticle of Zachary. So, so that's why if you go to the Paschal Vigil Mass, um, you will notice that after communion, um, all of a sudden there's there's all this singing that breaks out, and the priest starts incensing the altar, um, and th- this this all takes place before the post-communion. So it seems a, a little bit strange, but it's just we're inserting the divine office um, into the Mass. Oh, it's beautiful. That is, uh, these, these three days are, are, I'm sure intense for, for you, father, for the, for the priests. Um, but I'm sure it must be a a beautiful thing to be able to experience as, you know, from the perspective, from your perspective as a priest father, to, to be able to go through these ceremonies, um, exhausting, but beautiful. Yes, they're, they're really stunning ceremonies. And, and again, for me, the, the Gregorian chant is very powerful. Um, like, I know it's Easter when, when I walk in after um, those preliminary ceremonies with the Paschal candle. You, you know, the, the priest goes out and he, he puts on a fancy alb and the gold vestments. And then he walks in to begin the Mass and you immediately hear Kyrie One, which is which is my favorite Kyrie. You know, it's like Kyrie um, and that for me at that moment, I'm like, wow, this is it's Easter, it's Easter time, and it's um, it's so beautiful. It is, and and shortly thereafter, when the when the gospel is sung, the bells all ring and the statues are uncovered. Uh, it gives me chills every time. Yes. So, I mean, it's it's just Holy Mother Church really wanting. I mean, she doesn't in in our in our Roman liturgy. It's very sober. Um, there, there, it's not a lot of emotionalism. But um, for this very special feast, the the church uh, allows herself to sort of go out of herself to a certain degree, and, and we can see that no, it definitely deserves the solemnity of the occasion. Definitely merits it. It does. Well, Father, thank you so much for going through the uh, the entire sacred triduum with us. Uh, I know it'll help help me quite a bit as as I attend these services, um, and you know, again, just to, to appreciate, like you said, the the beauty of of what Holy Mother Church has provided for us. So, thank you very much. My pleasure, Andrew.